And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. You can be seated. Good morning, and Merry Christmas. Peace and joy to you this morning as we celebrate the arrival of the King to his people, without which we would know only misery, longing, and despair. We cannot overestimate just how central to the hope of the gospel is the coming of the Son of God, the second person of the eternal Trinity, to take on human flesh. The brief moment in history in which Christ walked on this earth is the pivotal event that broke the power of the curse and the reign of the enemy on this earth. It is the guarantee of the future peace and glory for which we so eagerly long, without which there will be no victory, no peace, and no hope. Well, because Brother Clay did such a faithful job in presenting us with the biblical expectation and fulfillment in the birth of Christ last week, and as we were reminded last night in our Christmas Eve service as we walked through those same scriptural passages, I want to give us a bit of a different perspective this morning on these same events to draw our gaze back a little bit as to look at the advent of the incarnation of Christ from more of a cosmic, big-picture perspective. But before doing so, I'd ask that you would join me once more in prayer. Father, as I always am, I'm aware of how inadequate I am for this task of proclaiming your word. How utterly dependent on your spirit to speak through me and to soften the hearts of those who will hear. So I pray that you would speak to your people this morning by your word. That you would draw us all closer to Christ. Give us more awe and wonder at the life and the work of Christ. And if there is any who do not yet know Jesus, who have not yet embraced the King. Father, and I pray that you'd even use these words to break whatever barriers are there, that today might be a day of salvation. Pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, I would be willing to guess that when most of you think of the Christmas story, 
it doesn't involve a dragon. You perhaps thought the passage that was read this morning might have been read by mistake, that maybe we were actually supposed to be in Romans. Yet that is what we are going to look at this morning. Christmas and the dragon. Perhaps in the future that creature will feature in your telling of the birth of the king. That newborn child wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger with mother and father looking lovingly over him. Perhaps an ox, a donkey, and maybe a lamb somewhere in the background to complete the ambiance. And then with a terrifying dragon perched somewhere above looking for his opportunity to strike. Well, as you're reading, starting in Revelation 12, just reading verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Even if you're not that familiar with Revelation, you probably know that there's a lot of language in here that can be a little bit um, more difficult to understand. It's not impossible. God gave it to us for our good, to, to guide us, to help us go where, as we should go. And John has been given a number of visions of different things, of things that have happened, things that are going to happen, uh, to be able to prepare the early church to face what was coming. And this is one of those visions. So as we begin, begin this telling of the Christmas story, we are introduced to a woman. Though it may not be obvious at first glance, John gives us evidence to show that this woman actually represents something more. It's not just speaking of an individual person. He isn't speaking of Mary, as we might expect if we're thinking, well, it's a Christmas story, and there's a woman that's going to give birth. That's got to be Mary. We are told that this woman was a great sign appearing in heaven. That's a typical signifier of symbolism in apocalyptic literature such as we find in Revelation. That something appeared as a sign. She was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. So not only does that show us that she is representative of something greater than just one person, but it also shows us what this woman represents. You can think back with me to the visions that were the dreams given to Joseph before he was made, sold off to slavery into Egypt. And if you don't remember those visions, I'm going to read from Genesis 37, 9 and 10. So then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing to me. But when he told his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come down and bow ourselves to the ground before you? Of course, if you remember the story of Joseph, well, that's precisely what happened. Is they eventually did come and bow to the ground before him. But that combination of of the sun and the moon, along with the 12 stars. And yes, in, in Joseph's vision, there was 11 stars. But if you add Joseph to it, you get 12 stars. So the combination of the sun and the moon, along with the stars, represents the line of the patriarchs and the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, 
This, re- this woman is representative of the faithful covenant people of God. The remnant of believing Israel throughout the Old Testament and leading up to the arrival of the Son of God. So yes, that would include Mary, for sure. But it is, it is more than her, and that, and that representation goes back long before her. Since this woman includes all the faithful covenant people of God, she also includes those who became part of God's family through the new covenant. Those who were of Abraham's physical lineage and those of his spiritual lineage by faith. Even though that is true and she would come to represent that, at the time of her birth pain, she represented an overwhelmingly Jewish identity. And then as she escaped into the wilderness and is protected from the murderous intentions of that dragon, she began to take on a new identity as the nations were all welcomed in with the call of the gospel. So we continue to verse 2. John tells us that she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So this woman, this representative woman, pointing us to all of the faithful covenant people of God is in the pains of childbirth and agony. Well, just looking around, judging by the number of kids that I see in this room, most of us understand what that means. The pains of carrying a child begin long before those excruciating hours in labor and delivery as the child moves through the birth canal. There are long months where the woman's body is being reconformed, reconfigured from its normal state to that which allows for the growth of a child. Bones, organs, everything being pushed out of the way and moved and and joints being made ready. Having never experienced this myself, obviously, I have it on good authority as I have walked by my wife's side through this seven times. So I have on good authority that this is often very unpleasant and an uncomfortable experience that lasts week after week and month after month. Frequent are the back pain, hip pain, rib pain, difficulty moving, breathlessness, fatigue and restlessness. Pregnant ladies in the room, does that about cover it? The woman that John saw in this vision, was crying out in birth pain. She was at the point of giving birth, where everything comes to a crescendo. Just as the woman's ordeal in pregnancy began long before the ordeal of labor, so too did the struggle of God's people begin long before the arrival of the promised Messiah. We see that playing throughout the entire Old Testament. Great enemies of God have been at war with the people of God from the beginning. Think of the history of Israel, a long progression of God's mercy and faithfulness, his promising to bring about their salvation, juxtaposed with a nation continually being led astray, continually going after false gods, and continually falling into the traps and the clutches of other nations. Nations that were led by their gods, which we know from elsewhere in Scripture weren't in fact gods, but demons, the fallen angels, servants of Satan himself. So think of the miracle 
that the woman survived to see the agony of childbirth. Those child pains, those national child, those pains of child rearing that went on for so many generations. All that pain and trial, all the adversity, and she survived to be able to deliver. Falling into the hands of ravaging wolves time and again because of the faithlessness of unbelieving Israel. Even the the true remnant that stayed faithful to the Lord God continually went through horrendous periods of time because of all the unfaithfulness around them. How easily the woman and the child could have been lost in the combined efforts of human frailty and demonic manipulations and schemes. So many times throughout the history in the Old Testament. So this woman suffered long to bring this child to term. And John makes her adversary, her true enemy, clear as he continues. We read in verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. So we see a woman who is in the pains of childbirth, and now we see this great red dragon. A wondrous and terrible sight for John to behold, we can have no doubt. This is the dragon that was promised in our Christmas story this morning. Any evil or malice that can be imagined within this image of the dragon will pale to the reality of what is it, what is. Tolkien himself could imagine no greater evil, no more terrible force, no more oppressive evil and hate than is represented in this creature that waits upon the woman and her child. Of course, for anyone who wanted there to be a real physical dragon in this story, I must humbly burst your bubble. Just as the woman represents something more, so too does the dragon. And thankfully, in all the discussion of the beasts and the creatures in the revelation that John was given, John actually tells us exactly who this dragon is just a few verses later in verse 9. And he said, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down into the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. One commentator I read noted how that this dragon, with, with all the heads and the horns and the diadems, this dragon appeared as though he was a combination of the various beasts of Daniel's visions. And it shared the heads of the beast that represented Rome just a few ver- chapters later in the, in the book of Revelation. So this dragon is the picture of malice that the people of God have faced throughout the centuries. He is the cause of the birth pains that the woman faced throughout the time of bringing about the child. He wears that title of ancient serpent as he it was who tempted our first parents in the garden, who got them to disbelieve the word of God. 
And from the point where he brought our race to destruction, he has warred to prevent the fulfillments of God's promise. He has warred to prevent the seed of the woman that was promised would bruise his head. We continue in verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So this great red dragon, supported by a third of the angelic host who fell with him when he tried to rise and ascend to the glory level of God himself, stood over the woman, stalking as Zoe great jungle cat waiting for his chance to strike down and destroy this child who was being born. See, he had had failed to prevent the arrival of God's Messiah. He had failed to stop the coming of the king, though it wasn't for lack of trying. As mentioned before, he and his servants had been at war with the people of God from the beginning hoping to destroy the line of the promised one who was going to come and reign over the earth. That same earth that Satan had enjoyed dominion over since Adam abdicated the role of his creation and our race fell into ruin. Just think of how hard that dragon had been working, how many pains he caused this representative woman in her long caring of the child. The history of the Bible is a history of several almost supernatural empires and powers as seen in in the apocalyptic visions long ago. These supernatural almost powers pursuing and trying to crush Israel. Powers that arose from, from nothing to conquer the known world. Or think of the work of Satan in the presence of giants in the promised land that Israel was promised as an inheritance from God. These giants in the promised land who stole the people's confidence and cost them an entire generation in the wilderness. After all those efforts to prevent the line of the Messiah from holding on till God's designated time, Satan stood there opposed to the child as he was born. Well, what did that opposition look like? Well, how about a pretender king on the throne in Jerusalem? A pretender king who was so insecure that when he heard that the king had been born, he wiped out an entire village worth of infants and toddlers to try and destroy the newborn king. Or how about a nation rising to greater power and dominion than anything before it, spreading far and wide across the known world and dominating in the land of God's people in the day when Christ was born? Or how about the leading, the tempting, the the deceiving of the civil and religious leaders of the nation of Israel to lose themselves in their hatred of Jesus? to lose themselves in their desire to undermine him and to destroy him. And no doubt there was much more that happened that we aren't even aware of. The dragon was poised to kill, and that is exactly what he tried to do. We're in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child. 
one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, this verse is perhaps the shortest retelling of the gospel that you'll be able to find. The shortest one I can think of. All the beautiful detail that we find in the different gospel accounts are summarized here in one brief sentence. The child who is to rule the nations was born, and then he was caught up to his throne in heaven before the dragon could make good on his desire to destroy him. Of course, since we know the the whole story of the gospel, we know the, the fuller story, all the events in between, we know that for a moment the dragon did appear to win. Yet that momentary victory provided for his ultimate defeat. Well, there can be no doubt, really, that this child is the Christ. He is the fruit of God's faithful covenant people. He is the seed of the woman that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3. The ancient serpent, the dragon, striving to prove the word of God wrong that this child would bruise his head. We can think of the messianic promise in Psalm 2, and you can turn there with me if you like. Psalm 2 will be in verse 7 through 12. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me that I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Notice that same language of the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. This child in John's vision is the king who was born. As recognized by the men from the east, the wise men from the east. If you remember way back when and when we were early on in our study of Matthew, these wise men were essentially kingmakers. They were the ones who, who read the signs from the, from the heavens, who heard the voices and could, could give the wisdom that was beyond the normal man. These were the ones that conferred legitimate power onto kings in powerful nations and empires. And they came because God gave them a sign. They came to recognize that this child who was born, this humble peasant child was king. And they worshipped at his feet. This is the child that once he reached adulthood proclaimed that the kingdom of God was here. No longer some distant hope, no longer some distant reality, some longing for, for a generation long away. The kingdom was here. His kingdom. God had come with his kingdom. Those represented by the woman in our vision today rejoiced to see the day of their salvation. 
Everyone else was warned of the judgment soon to come. Yet no one would be left as they had been. The world could never again be as it had been. The kingdom without end and without rival is here. It was here with Christ. It is here now. And it forevermore will be here. So in our Christmas story with the dragon, we must supply in the full context of the gospel story into that brief sentence about the child's birth and ascension to his throne. Yet he was born, and he ascended victorious. The dragon's efforts were foiled. Continue in verse 6 of Revelation 12. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Well, just as the child survived the efforts of the dragon, so too did the woman. She was led safely into the wilderness to be sustained by the all-sufficient hand of God Just as Israel was redeemed out of Egypt and brought safely into the wilderness where God fed them and made sure they had water. So this woman's identity had been centered around bringing about the Messiah. Her identity had been centered around bringing that seed of the woman to bear. And after, her ident- after his victory, after his ascension to his throne, this woman's identity still remained in that child. Where she had represented those who were trusting in the promise of God, she came now to represent those who had embraced the salvation of God in Christ. Well, without taking too much time to get into it this morning, Scripture is filled with the evidence that God is able to keep his own. God is able to hold on to his own. He is able to protect his own. And he is able to cause his own to flourish. Even though that flourishing may not look like what the world would desire or expect. So it should not be hard for us to accept that even with that great red dragon himself bearing down on the woman, that God was able to care for her. So there we have a nice, succinct telling of the Christmas story with a dragon. Well, if we lose sight of the big, this big cosmic picture, we might be tempted to think that God's kingdom that was declared to be present on earth with the arrival of its king was a failure. Or we might be tempted to think that that this kingdom remains some kind of long, distant, hoped-for thing. Well, I want you to look, at, look with me at a relatively familiar passage in the book of Daniel. If it isn't obvious right away how our, this passage ties in with our Christmas story and the dragon, we'll, we'll work to make it more clear in just a few moments. So go ahead and turn to Daniel 2, and then I'll try to set the context So remember, with all the promises of God for the kingdom of David, 
of the promises of the throne and the reign of his descendants being never ending, the Davidic kingdom only enjoyed two generations. And after that, it was divided between a northern and southern kingdom, and those kingdoms knew constant turmoil until they finally fell to foreign empires. So at this point, we see David's throne empty, the hopes of the nation crushed. Daniel himself was a captive in exile in Babylon, and he, along with a few other Jewish young men, had risen to some prominence in the court of Nebuchadnezzar among his wise men and his sorcerers. So we'll start reading in Daniel 2, 1, and we're going to skip around a bit from there. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell him of his dream. So they came in and stood before him. Let's give it down to verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Of course, the Chaldeans answered, going down to verse 10, answered and said, to the, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The things that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. But one way to get a sure interpretation of a dream is to demand that somebody tell you what your dream was, too. Otherwise, you won't get any sure, have any shortage of different tellings of of those who want to promise you great and wonderful things and those who want to see your mind tormented. We'll jump down to verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and his, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery, because the king had promised to kill and destroy them and their family of everyone who would not tell him his vision. So Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So jumping down to verse 26. The king then declared to Daniel, whose name was to the king, or sorry, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and your visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And as I read through the giving of the vision by Daniel and its interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, I want to see if you can piece together how this vision ties in together with our Christmas story with the dragon. We're starting in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. 
The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them into pieces. And the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the mights, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell the, all the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler of them all, you are the head of gold. Daniel certainly didn't have a problem with flattery. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, shall, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it, so break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of it shall be in it just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partially iron and partially clay, so, so this kingdom be partially strong and partially brittle. As you sire the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as the iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and then it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall surely be after this. The dream is certain, and its in interpretation sure. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was, at the time of Daniel, the present oppressor of God's people. And it was the first kingdom represented by this statue in the vision. After Babylon would come three other kingdoms who would each have dominion over the earth. Three kingdoms that would each, in turn, come against the people of God. Kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom would try and put down and control God's chosen nation. They would try to, to thwart any hopes and plans of this nation. It truly is a testament to the faithfulness of God that the nation of Israel survived such mighty enemies. Many nations of this era in history did not. Many nations, when they were ripped from their homelands and forced to live somewhere else in exile, simply forsook the previous identity they held, whatever religion or gods they used to adhere to, and they adopted the religion and the manner of their captors. 
God worked for his people in many unseen ways, as well as in ways that were miraculous and timely, such as in granting Daniel the vision that saved his life and the life of his companions. So after the rise and fall of four kingdoms, each in turn oppressing the people of God and then being surpassed by yet another enemy, something miraculous happened. This pattern was broken. A stone that was not cut by human hands entered into the vision, crashed onto the last of the kingdoms, and in that, all the kingdoms were ultimately destroyed and overcome. Well, if that was all we had heard of the, of the stone not cut by human hands, that it came in and crashed this statue, we might be tempted to think that this is speaking of the end of all the things, when every enemy is eternally destroyed, when the king comes again, and the eternal age begins. However... Something happens with that stone to tell us that this isn't speaking of the final victory at the beginning of the eternal age. The stone grew into a mountain and filled the whole earth. So what began during the reign of this fourth kingdom would expand and grow until it filled the whole earth. This isn't language of an immediate global dominion it is speaking of something that starts small and then expands outward, ultimately building to a crescendo of glory and power. Well, do you see how this relates to the birth of the child who is destined to rule the nations? The one destined to rule with a rod of iron. How it shows the pursuit of the woman by the dragon as she struggled with the birth pains, just trying to bring the child to, to the point where he was ready to be born, and as the pains increased until the agony of birth. Or how, about, does this, how does this describe the way that Jesus talked about his kingdom? If you turn with me to Matthew 13, we'll look at verses 31 through 33. This is within a section of teaching where Jesus is using parables to teach those gathered around him. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of air come and make nests under its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So the kingdom of God, as indicated as far back as Daniel's day, was promised to begin small, was promised to begin without the fanfare, and then grow until it permeated the entire earth. Jesus told his disciples the same thing as he prepared them for what they would experience upon his resurrection and ascension. 
And Jesus certainly did not think his brief time on this earth was a failure. Nor did he expect the impact and growth of his kingdom to continue to be but a distant hope for his people, as it had been for so long for Israel. What was the message of Jesus? The kingdom of God was here. Her king had arrived, and he had all authority in heaven and on earth. He went up to his throne, reigning over all of the earth. A heavenly throne is not lesser than an earthly throne. And he ascended to one that is heavenly. And then he sent another helper to work within his people that they would build his kingdom on this earth. It was supposed to start small. The kingdom was supposed to to be something that was small, the least, and to be able to grow and grow. Well, as we think about the incarnation, what was the impact of the arrival of the kingdom and the incarnation of our Lord on the nation of Israel? Well, those who were represented by the woman in John's vision embraced their king. They witnessed the early days of the kingdom and they endured the hardship and the contention with their natural families that had been promised to them. Yet they were made children of God and they were given the family of God, Christ on this earth and his body, the church. Yet those who joined forces with this great red dragon to reject to discredit, and to ultimately kill the child-born king, they had but a generation after his ascension before the promised doom fell upon them in glory and in fury. The Old Covenant, Old Testament relationship that the ethnic people of Israel had enjoyed as the chosen vessel to bring about the king of kings was by her final adultery and apostasy cut off. The new age dawned in the arrival of the kingdom and the revelation of the true Israel of God, which was made up of faithful Jews, and at the beginning almost exclusively faithful Jews, yet also of those chosen from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Well, what has been the impact of the incarnation, of the arrival of the kingdom of God on this earth for the rest of the world? Has the stone that was not cut by human hands, has it grown? Is it becoming a mountain? Is it in the process, however long it might take, of filling the whole of the earth, as Nebuchadnezzar's dream foreshone, and as Jesus revealed in his parables of the kingdom? Well, think about it like this. The nation of Israel left Captivity in Egypt, as we are told in numbers, with some 600,000 men, along with women and children. It is no wonder the Egyptians feared that if, if the Jews remained strong, that they might overtake them. By the first century, the nation had a population of maybe four and a half million. So there's maybe four and a half million Jews worldwide by the first century. So some 1,500 years later... That's survival. 
That's no one's definition of thriving or expanding. Well, how about the growth of the church? The Christian church began in the first century with 12 apostles and a few hundred others who could loosely be called disciples. Within a few hundred years, Christianity, this kingdom of God, had overcome the fourth kingdom of the vision from earlier, and Rome itself became a Christian nation, at least by policy. At the very least, the message and the ethic of God's kingdom had moved from being seen as some obscure Jewish cult to having great influence and grip over even the mightiest in the mightiest empire. Even when the church had become corrupt and lost its focus, as it did with the Roman Catholic Church, God brought about a great reformation that recovered the gospel message of the kingdom and launched countless missionaries around the world with evangelistic zeal to bring the name of Christ and the message of the kingdom to a great many tribes, tongues, and lands that had never been told before of the name of God. And now there are some 660 million evangelical Christians around the world, over 1 billion Protestants, and if we include Catholics as people who at least know of the name of Christ and proclaim it, that number doubles to over 2 billion people worldwide. Even understanding that those numbers no doubt include many who are culturally Christian at best, as well as including many we would not feel comfortable actually calling true Christians, those numbers still show the widespread success and influence of Christianity around the world. Western civilization would not exist as it is or has been known, nor would it have known the, the success and advancement that it has without the presence and influence of Christianity. And make no mistake about it, whatever they are preaching at us right now, not all civilizations are equal. They just, they aren't. Not all religions are equal. Not all civilizations are equal. Not all standards of morality are equal. Some are simply better than others. Those that have been developed under the influence of the kingdom message and the law of God are simply categorically better cultures than those who have been developed under anything else. Amen. They have been better for the flourishing of their citizens. As we consider Christianity's influence in the West, that includes the rise in human rights, the abolishment of slavery, and a sense of justice that is built upon the law of God, the protection of the innocent and the downtrodden, not to mention the unparalleled rise in quality of life that people living in those civilizations have enjoyed compared to the competing cultures around the globe. And yes, there is much work still to be done. In just 2,000 years or so since the ascension of Christ to his throne at the right hand of the Father, I would say that this stone, not cut by human hands, has grown quite a bit. This mustard seed has indeed expanded and sprouted to give shade to many. Uh, this leaven, this little bit of leaven that was added to the flour has worked its way through the entire batch. Truly the birth of Christ has changed the world. We must not cheapen 
all that our Lord accomplished on this earth by ignoring the great impact that the kingdom has already had. Even as we look and long for the day when its work is complete. That day that we still long for when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. The King has come to earth. The promised child has been born. He has all authority. He rules from heaven. His kingdom is ever advancing. It will cover the world. It cannot be stopped. That is the good news that the angels proclaimed so long ago. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you do not yet know the peace of God that the victory of Christ has secured, then I urge you to see there that there is simply no standing against the king. There is no way that you can stand against and survive if you are standing in the way of the king. You are standing in opposition to the king of kings. Either repent of your rebellion and and embrace the newborn king, embrace the child who was born king in the kingdom he established, or you too will be crushed under the weight of the mountain. For those who have embraced the call of Christ, I implore you to live as citizens of that kingdom, as recipients of that glory and that peace. No longer live as though we are beaten down and defeated. No matter what adversity we face, in Christ we know that we cannot be overcome. God's people, God's kingdom will not be overcome because Christ has already overcome the world. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel message. We thank you for your son. May we never grow tired of reading and meditating upon the incarnation, the wonder of what you have done for us, the sacrifice of your son, the pain that he endured, that we might have peace with you. May we celebrate your kingdom and labor in its advance. Confident that no matter if we achieve great success or we are persecuted and killed, we are advancing the cause of Christ. And the gates of hell cannot hold against your gospel. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.